Well, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're picking up our uh, normal series in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, had a short Easter break last week to jump ahead to the, the resurrection, but uh, we're jumping back now to chapter 22. And uh, Jesus is speaking to, has been speaking to Pharisees, chief priests, elders, scribes, and uh, the conversation uh, continues in this uh, short ch- section that I want to read to us, verse 15 uh, to 22. So Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, We know you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful? Tell us what, (laughs) tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. Lord, once again we ask that you would come uh, as our loving Heavenly Father and come and minister to us uh, moment by moment as we uh, come to your words, that you come graciously to us and help us uh, to understand all that you'd say to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just to recap a little on this. Since the start of chapter 21, Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the last time. And uh, we've seen uh, growing opposition to Jesus. It's been very gentle thus far. um, But it's coming from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the Pharisees. And you may remember that it began uh, back in chapter 21, verse 23. And uh, the chief priests and the elders of the people come up to him. Um, as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So they're questioning the very foundations of Jesus' ministry uh, by asking this question about authority. And so it starts off like that, but chillingly by the, by the end of the chapter in verse 46, uh, we find that they were seeking to arrest him. But they're hindered from doing that because of the crowds. Um, the crowds believe he's a prophet and uh, you don't want to go against the crowds of people uh, if you're a politically minded person. And uh, so they've, they've held off for now arresting him in front of all the people. But this uh, sort of chilling note sort of, uh, begin, continues to grow. Uh, and it comes into this passage when we read that they are, they are uh, plotting together. They're taking counsel together, these Pharisees. And what are they taking counsel together about? They're planning how to entangle Jesus, how to trap Jesus. 
in his words. And So this is, in all of this activity on the part of the religious leaders, is the outworking of the truth that has been told by Jesus already in the parables that we saw uh, two or three weeks ago. That these religious leaders, they are the sons who say to their father, yes, we'll do what you say, but then don't do it. They are the, the tenants of the vineyard who think that they have absolute control of the vineyard and put to death the prophets that the master has sent to get what is due to him. And in the end, they kill the son in that parable of the tenants. That's these religious leaders. That's what they're planning to do. Get rid of Jesus. These religious leaders, they're the ones who have been invited to the king's wedding feast for his son. And they have either responded with indifference and therefore have been excluded or if they do try to come they won't come on the terms of entry which is to wear the garments that have been given to them. The wedding garments. Instead they want to wear their own garments. And so here we see religious people supposedly committed to God's will trying to find a way to trap the Son of God and to entangle him in his words and, if, and to be able somehow to get rid of him. Well, this is a passage that uh, uh, contains one of the most famous statements that Jesus um, made, and you may remember it, uh, where Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, And to God, the things that are God's, verse 21. And often this passage is used to teach on the the relationship of the Christian to the state. And there is a lot lot we can learn from that. But actually that is what you might call a minor note in Jesus' teaching here. It's actually not the main thing. And uh, we need to focus on the main thing. Always keep the main thing the main thing in the Christian life. And uh, that's what we will will do this morning. Uh, We will come to that uh, major note that Jesus is going to teach uh, in due course. But three things I want you to to notice in this passage. Uh, First of all, it's worth noticing the the tactics of the Pharisees. How they uh, approach Jesus this time. And... Remember what they're trying to do here. They're plotting at the moment to try and entangle Jesus in his words. They're trying to tie him up in knots. It's not about something that Jesus has done this time. They want to just get him to say something that would actually incriminate him and give them justification for arresting him. And as they come, they have three elements to their armory of tactics. Uh, and the first element is that they don't approach Jesus themselves. Um, instead, they send their students, their disciples. That's a low approach, isn't it? Send a minion out to, to go and try and deal with him. Maybe it'll disarm him somehow. And maybe they can have success where we haven't had success. And it's a, you know, these, are, these Pharisees, they are, they are men who are training younger men to follow in their footsteps, to be religious leaders. 
And so they have these disciples following them around. You can just imagine the, uh, the entourage that uh, as a Pharisee is walking through the marketplace and everybody's greeting them and welcoming them. And behind them is all these, all these students basking in the glory of their teacher as they go. And here is here the Pharisees now say, well, you young man, you go and have a, ask him this question. We'll come to the question in a moment. But this is the, this is the tactic of uh, the Pharisees. The direct approach has not worked. So let's try a slightly different approach. A, a less direct approach. Send the disciples in. Send in the cannon fodder. See how we can do with the cannon fodder this time. So that's, number one. that's the first element. The second element in these tactics is the way in which they form an alliance with the Herodians. Now, you may wonder, who are the Herodians? Um, Remember, the Pharisees were a kind of political party, a religiously minded political party committed to the the word of God, uh, uh, seeking to apply all the law to the, the lives of the people and to get people to apply the law to themselves. And, and just in case they ever uh, dare to possibly get near to breaking the law, they've got all sorts of other laws to kind of hedge them in. And so there's so many laws and everything. They want to try and get the people to live holy lives. And so in one sense, the motive is good, but actually it's, it's misguided. But that's the Pharisees. But the Herodians are a different party altogether. They, are, they don't care that much about the Messianic kingdom. They don't care about the law of God so much. They care about the Herodian dynasty. The dynasty of Herod the Great. And uh, so they are politically minded elites of the society. And uh, they're not really in line with the Pharisees, but when it comes to meeting with Jesus... They are aligned in, against Jesus. And it's strange, isn't it, how opponents, people who can be opponents in ordinary life, can suddenly become friends when they meet a common enemy. And this is Jesus. They've, they're opposed to him. So the, the other element, second element, is that they form these uh, alliances. And the third element, and the most direct element of these disciples of the Pharisees, is, is to use flattery. To try and flatter Jesus, to, to enable him to maybe drop his guard, and then he's open to getting entangled in his words. And so verse 16 uh, says this. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Sounds great, doesn't it? And it's all true. (laughs) You know, flattery uh, sometimes works by exaggerating or lying about something. But making somebody feel like it's true of them. And you get into their good books, as it were, by flattery. And uh, then you can get a hearing And that's basically a form of lying. But there's another kind of flattery, which is to say true things with great enthusiasm. So that uh, the the idea of inner pride begins to grow up within the person being flattered. And they get a bit of a big head. And start thinking, yeah, I'm really something. 
But the whole motive behind it is insincere. They don't really believe that he is true or teaches the truth of God. They don't really care that he he doesn't care about appearances. They don't believe it. It's just a ploy to get him to let his guard down. There's There's an old saying, isn't there? Keep your friends close and your enemies closer still. Well, that's how flattery works. It tries to get your enemies closer still so that you can take them down later. It's a naked ploy, you see. So here's the tactics of the Pharisees. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't believe a word of it. Look at verse 18. Jesus aware of their malice. Or aware of their evil. He has a, a wisdom. And a discernment. Which allows him to discern the motives of the heart. And he's having none of it. He even calls them hypocrites. Jesus, aware of their malice, says, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why do you tempt me, you hypocrites? What's a hypocrite? Well, it's someone who plays a part. Somebody uh, who goes on the stage and plays somebody that is not actually them. That's the old Greek meaning of the word. uh, A player on the stage. And this is what they are. They're being players on the stage. Pretending to be something they're not. They come with their questions. And I don't know. Maybe they thought Jesus would somehow go weak at the knees with all this flattery that's going on. I think, yes. I'll answer your questions because I'm really something. No, he doesn't do that. Calls them out for what they are. Hypocrites, full of malice and deceit. So these are the tactics of the the opponents. Let's think about the question that they ask. Uh, And when they eventually get to the question, verse 14, after all the flattery, they say, tell us what, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Ah, interesting question, I suppose. Kind of out of left field a little bit. Um, why, would it, why would they come to Jesus with that question at this point? Uh, well, think about the motives. This, what is this tax, anyway? Well, it's a tax that is levied by the Romans on every citizen under the control. And, uh, and you'll notice that in verse 19, he refers to the, Jesus refers to the coin for the tax. In other words, there was a particular denomination... Uh, of coin that uh, worked for the tax, that sufficed for the tax. And everybody had to pay it. So it's a kind of form of uh, a poll tax. You know, if you're you're old enough to have lived through the 1980s and the the Conservative government at the time sought to institute a a community charge, they called it. It was actually a poll tax. Uh, Everybody had to pay the same thing. And uh, the history of the United Kingdom is poll taxes don't work. The, The population will not have it. So if you understand that, um, you'll understand the, the, uh, the anger that the people feel about the taxes that the Romans are putting on the Jewish people. And so the question is, I guess it's a very real question for Pharisees, should we pay this tax or not? Should it go to Caesar? And where, where, does, where does the tax go? Well, it doesn't go to the people. 
It doesn't go to provide goods and services for the people, the, the, uh, the, the down at heel and all the people who have needs. No, it goes into Caesar's coffers to support the military and the campaigns that they're involved in. You know, so that all you're doing in giving the tax is funding those who occupy you, who you hate. So it's a terrible thing. So that's the background to this tax. And the question is a tricky one. Is it lawful then uh, to pay this tax? But remember, the point is not to get an answer to the question so much as the point is to try and entangle Jesus in his words. You see, if, if Jesus answers yes straight away, without qualification, then because of the hatred of the population for the rule of Caesar, then he would become an enemy of the people. If he answers no straight away, then the Herodians would accuse him of treason against the king and against the authorities. So it's not not an easy question to give a yes-no answer to. And so Jesus discerns this. And with remarkable wisdom and shrewdness, doesn't take the bait with a yes-no answer. Actually, he sees it right through it as a test or a temptation. It's the same word in the Greek, by the way. And he answers by bringing out a much more important issue. Much more important than whether or not you pay taxes. And so thirdly, and we'll spend longer on this, let's consider the answer that Jesus gives. And Jesus begins by using an illustration. He asks for one of these coins, a denarius, with which to pay the tax. And the significance of the coin, of course, is is that on one side you have the head of the emperor, and on the other side you've got an inscription, some writing about the emperor, how great he is and all the rest of it, uh, and what the job he does. If you look at your coins in the United Kingdom, you'll see that the king has got, or the queen, if you've still got some of those coins, I've got various inscriptions about the, the job of the queen or the king. And uh, so he asks for this coin, and he receives it, and, and he asks, Jesus asks the question, verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? Whose likeness and inscription is this? And the answer is an obvious one. Caesar's, of course it is. And it's at this point that Jesus says these important words. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now there are two parts to that statement. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, part one. And part two is, and to God the things that are God's. One has a, is a statement about the relationship of the citizen to the state. The other is about the relationship of the individual to God. And while both parts are important, they come across with different emphasis. Now the verb here is important. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. That word render doesn't just mean give or hand over. Render means 
the obligation to pay what is owed. And so the, the implication is that the people have an obligation both to Caesar, to the state, and to God. And you cannot get away from those things. As I said, they, they don't come with equal emphasis. The lesser emphasis is on a person's relationship to the state. And it's, it's worth just dwelling on this for a moment. But it's, and I'm not, no, we're not saying it's less true. We're just saying it doesn't have the, the focus that Jesus wants to bring to it. But he does bring some focus to it. And it simply means that all of us need to be good citizens under the, ru- the, rule, the, uh, the rule of the day. So, we must pay our taxes. I know that can be distasteful for some of us to pay our taxes. We look at our pay slips and we think, what on earth is the government doing with my money that I've just given it to, given to them or they have taken from me? Because uh, you never get to see it yourself. It's maybe distasteful. But, we have an obligation to pay. And you don't need to agree with the government. You don't need to have voted for them. Uh, you may even have a blasphemous government, as the Roman government, Romans were, in exalting Caesar above all. But you cannot say, not my government, and declare UDI and withdraw from society. You have an obligation to pay your taxes as required and to obey the law as required. And this is clear, I think, from other passages, uh, such as Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's really important, isn't it? All authority ultimately comes from God. And therefore we take very seriously our obligation to secular authority. Or 2 Timothy 2.3, uh, we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So we actually hold them in high enough regard that we pray for them. Even though we haven't voted for them, even though we may not like them, we pray for them. So Christians are to be good citizens in the secular realm, even if you don't like the government of the day. The only exception to this, of course, is if the government of the day tells you to do something that God has commanded you, not to do something that God has commanded you, or commands you to do something that God has not or forbidden you. Uh, an example of that is uh, Peter and the Apostles in Acts chapter 5. They go out preaching the gospel, and uh, they're, they're arrested, and... Uh, The Sanhedrin tell him, don't you preach ever again. Stop preaching in his name. And Peter and the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. And so they carry on preaching the gospel. And take the consequences. Take the hit. God has commanded it, therefore that's what we do. That's what we need to do as a church, isn't it? We need to keep preaching the gospel and not be cowed by anybody in secular society who says, you shouldn't be saying that. No, we'll say it. We'll keep saying it. We'll die saying it. But we have an obligation to the state and the powers that be. So that's the the lesser emphasis. 
But by far the greater emphasis Jesus places on the second part of his statement. Render to God the things that are God's. Render to God the things that are God's. In other words, pay to God what is owed to God. Now what is he referring to there? What are we to pay to give over to God? The answer is it found in his use of images. Just as every coin has an image of Caesar on it, illustrating the obligation of every citizen, uh, every citizen has to the powers that be, so every human being bears the image of God. So you look at a human being, you see something of the character of God in that person. Every human being is created in the image of God. That's what Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 says. At the creation of man and woman, that he created them male and female in the image of God, he created them. And Jesus quotes that verse in various other points in the Gospels. He knows about it. He knows that human beings, all human beings, bear the image of God. And so the question that everybody has to answer, not just Christians, every single human being has to answer is, whose image is written on me? And if I bear that image, what do I owe to the one whose, whose image it is? And, you may, and the answer, of course, is God. Every single human being in this room today owes obedience to God. You have an obligation to give obedience to God. You can't wriggle out of it. Because, why? Because you bear the image of God as a, a human being. It's actually what gives mankind his dignity in creation above all other things in creation because we bear the image of God in us. Now you may think, well, the image of God is defaced. There are some evil people in the world. The image is is ruined, it's smudged, it's scarred, it's broken. That's true. But it's still there. So you owe it to God. You owe obedience to God. You owe an obligation to God. And again, I say again, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You owe it to God. God is clear. You are made in his image. You can't escape from that. You owe that which bears his image. You owe him your whole self. You owe him it. Now, friends, this morning you might be more interested in this question of do you pay taxes to the state or not? And how do you relate to the state? That's an interesting question, an important one. But much more important than that is how are you going to relate to God? How are you going to pay your obligation to God? Give what God is due. If you don't pay him, You rob God. Just as if you don't pay your taxes, you rob the state. 
If you don't pay God what he owe, you owe him, you rob him. And friends, it comes down to you know, some of the most practical things. You know, he deserves our worship, doesn't he? He is our God. He deserves our worship. And we owe him worship constantly. And a significant part of our paying our dues to God and his glory is coming together in a meeting like this, where we give him the glory. Even now, as you sit listening to this poor guy standing in the pulpit, you are giving glory, you should be giving glory to God, and I hope you are, as you're listening to God's word, and you're wrestling maybe with God, and you're talking to God about what was being said to you. And you're giving glory to him as you wrestle with him and wrestle with the truth that he's presenting to you. And so you, in a sense, coming here is one way of you paying your dues to God. And when you come back this evening, which you owe to God to come back and give glory to God this evening. You owe it to him. My dear friends. Can I say this? Some of us got a bit sloppy in thinking about this. You owe to God the glory he is due. One danger as we finish. Uh, Jesus is not suggesting here that we compartmentalize our lives so we've got a secular bit and a sacred bit so I can do this bit without God and I can do this without thinking about my relationship to society let me just quote from Leon Morris's commentary on this Jesus is not saying that we can divide life into separate compartments so that God has nothing to do with that section that belongs to Caesar The obligation to God covers all of life. We must serve Caesar in a way that is honoring to God. You see what he's saying? That actually when you give yourself to God, all of the rest of your life comes in underneath it. And so the way you do your work, the way you pay your taxes, the way you relate to the state, all of that stuff is gathered up under your commitment to God first and foremost. That's why it's more important. It's not either or, or in competition or anything like that. So all of your life is owed to God. Now friends, here's, here's the irony of the story, I think, um, is that the, as Jesus is speaking here in front of these Pharisees, who is the perfect image of God? Well, it's Jesus himself. He is, Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. This is the one who bears the image of God. And you know, this is one of whom the apostles said, we have seen his glory. We've seen it. And what is the right response to this man who bears the image of God and, and reveals his glory? That they should bow down to him. That they should worship him. And I'll just say to you this morning, have you settled in your mind the one whom you worship? Have you come to Jesus Christ and given yourself in worship to him Not just coming here on a Sunday, but the whole of your life is committing yourself to him that he may lead you and help you. See, this is what Jesus wants. He's wrestling with these Pharisees verbally. But actually what he wants is for men and women to come to him and receive from him 
and bow down and worship him. And friends, I encourage you to do that, to think carefully today. Think carefully this afternoon. How are you going to give yourself to God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and goodness to us in so many ways. You're so patient with us. And Father, we confess to you that there are times when we have not given you the glory that you're due. That we have not given you our lives as, as you are due. Lord God, we pray you change our lives, change our hearts, fill us with that sense of obligation, a glorious, wonderful sense of obligation to the wonder of our God. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.